Welcome to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about how to make marriage a passionate adventure and not a giant to-do list. Last week, we demolished a big argument that is very common in the evangelical church, and it goes something like this. Do not be a stumbling block for men based on how you dress. Make sure that you're modest so you don't cause someone to lust. And we looked at how dangerous that teaching was and how it's really very counterproductive. And we tried to say, here's a better way of talking about it. And this week, we want to tackle another one that is very dangerous. And it's the idea of unconditional respect. I actually talked about this in a podcast back in October, and then I ended up taking down that podcast because I said something stupid in the beginning of that podcast. So I want to revisit it and actually spend a little bit more time on it today. So I'm going to dedicate an entire podcast to what was just once a small segment. So here we go. Unconditional respect. Let's start to demolish this. I recently said something on Instagram where I talked about this and it went quite big. So I'm going to read to you what I said on Instagram. Unconditional respect is not a thing. Can we please stop talking about it? Lately, I have seen so many social media shares, podcasts, and pins about wives giving their husbands unconditional respect. But respect is earned. Now, we can always treat one another respectfully, regardless of what they do, and we should do that. We should speak kindly but firmly. We shouldn't be highly critical or mean. But speaking respectfully is not the same thing as actually respecting someone, admiring them, esteeming them, and looking up to them. You do not respect someone who is a child molester, who plays video games 12 hours a day and refuses to get a job, who gambles away a paycheck. Jesus did not respect the money changers or the Pharisees. He treated them instead as their actions warranted. Love, on the other hand, is not earned by correct actions. Love is simply wanting the best for someone else, and thus love is not dependent on how someone else acts. And if someone acts badly, well, then we can exercise tough love. We don't lend the drug-addicted sister $500 if we know she will use it to buy drugs. We don't let our 25-year-old continue to live in the basement if he won't get a job. But there is no equivalent for tough respect. And that's why unconditional respect is not a thing, while unconditional love is. Unconditional respect just ends up being a way to tell women that they cannot speak up if a husband is acting badly. This is not safe, this is not true, and this is not biblical. See Abigail and Nabal, or Ananias and Sapphira, or Moses and Zipporah, or Pilate and Pilate's wife for some examples. How about this instead? Let's love each other and let's treat each other with respect. Let's endeavor to be people who can be respected. Let's spur one another on to love and good deeds. But let's stop telling women they must unconditionally respect their husbands, even if their husbands act badly. Okay, here is the big issue. Women are told to unconditionally respect just as men have to unconditionally love. And we see this in a number of places in the evangelical world. It's a very common message. You know, women, you can't expect unconditional love if you won't give unconditional respect. And they point to a verse in Ephesians, which appears to say this. Okay, Ephesians 5.33, we normally read it as husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. But just because Paul says that you're supposed to do something in one verse does not mean that it is unconditional. For instance, in Romans 13, Paul, who also wrote Ephesians, Paul says this, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So there you go. You're supposed to submit to authority, right? I guess that means we need to unconditionally submit to authority. Except that Paul didn't do that. <laughs> like, they were always telling Paul to stop preaching. And you know what Paul did? He preached louder. So, you know, Paul himself did not submit unconditionally. What Paul did was he submitted when it was appropriate to do so. But when they were telling him to do something that wasn't of God, he didn't submit. You know, Peter in Acts 5 verse 29 says we must obey God and not man. And so this idea that because it says it in one verse, it means that it must be unconditional. It means it must be true for all time. Well, we need to take the rest of scripture into consideration. And in the rest of scripture, that's not the way that Paul talked about respect or submission or obedience or anything like that. Paul always said it's about Jesus first and God first. So in essence, respect is conditional. You know, love is not conditional because love is always being interested in someone's best. But to respect someone means that you have to admire and esteem them. And that is based on what they do. Okay, treating someone with respect simply means that you honor their boundaries, that you give them the right to make their own decisions, that you don't try to manipulate them, that you speak kindly and appropriately to them. But it doesn't mean you have to think about them in a certain way. And the problem is that often this idea of unconditional respect is used to tell women that, hey, you're not allowed to speak up when something's bothering you. But there's something even more interesting about that in that this whole idea of unconditional respect is really based on that one verse, Ephesians 5.33. And so I want to look more into the Greek on this. And so I have invited someone to come on the podcast and explore that with us. I have with me today, Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall from McMaster Divinity College in Ontario, near where I live. So this is exciting. I get to talk to a fellow Canadian and I have asked her on because she is an expert um, in Greek and she has actually looked at the translation of Ephesians 5.33 that we are talking about in this podcast. So you've given me permission to call you Cindy, so I'm just going to do that because that's easier. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Cindy, let me read you this verse in, I have the old NIV. I think this is the 1984 version mm -hmm. and you can tell me what, what you think of this translation. So here we go. Ephesians 5:33 says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what it says in the Greek. Okay. So what, what's the problem there? What the problem is, is that there's no must, there's no command, and there's no imperative that's given to the wife. It's actually a purpose, a signal to be a purpose clause, a garden variety purpose clause that, you know, you can look at, for instance, in our lexicon, Loenida, they say that this is what that means in order to, as a result, that, that, namely, that's it. And so it says, actually, in order that the wife may, may respect her husband, or with the purpose of that, or with the result of, that would be okay. normally what a Hina clause would read if one were not projecting one's own views about what this has to say. But there is okay, a because when I look at this in the NIV, it looks like it's saying, you know, husbands should love your wife and the wife must respect her husband. But you're saying there's no Greek 
word there that says and. There's instead a Greek word that says hina? There's, there's, it says there is a Greek word that we most often use as, as but. We translate it as but. It's what we call a de, and that's a mild contrast. And uh-huh. so it, it's, it could say but or just kind of say somewhat of a, of a um, on the other hand, that the wife, in order that the wife, you know, res, uh, should respect or fear her husband. And so there is a, there is a conjunction, um, but the Hina uh, signals purpose and result. So there's not an and conjunction. I remember when I was little, you know, you heard that conjunction, junction, what's your function thing with the grammar, and it was and and but, and so, but it's not an and, you're saying there's not a word an that really but. means so. It's in contrast. Yep. If you look at the Greek, and I'm going to just read this really wooden, woodenly, it says, and each of you, each one, each and so there's three emphatic different things. It's very awkward. And we no one ever translates it the way it says in the Greek. It just, it's kind of like saying, you, 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 <laughs> each one of you, you know, very emphatic, must love, and this is an imperative, uh, his own wife as himself, in order that the wife may respect the husband. Okay, so when you're saying there's an imperative, what that means is a command. That's a great grammatical term that means a command. Is the command. And so the word to love is given as a command. Yes. But the word respect is not. No, the respect is not. It's it's uh, what you call a subjunctive. But the thing is with the Hina clause, I actually was looking in, in a lexicon that says, you know what, there's such a thing as a Hina imperative with the subjunctive. And I'm like, there is no Hina without the subjunctive. The Hina always takes a subjunctive. There's nothing in this verse that signals that it's anything different than every other Hina clause that you read in context. And so they have thought, okay, this is a Hina clause with a subjunctive all the time, pretty much garden variety. This is in order that this should happen. And so um, I would say that this marks reciprocity in the marital relationship. Uh, specifically, specifically says that the husband's re, uh, way of behavior, which he has talked about at length with commands in it in the preceding mm-hmm. passage, is the basis upon which a wife respects. And so there is not, uh, in this passage, um, a non-reciprocal respect demanded of the wife. It's the opposite. It's, it's actually putting the obligation on the husband to behave in such a way that she does fear or respect him. And when you, this word fear, when you look at what it command, how it commands the husband to behave, you know, uh, contextually, this kind of behavior doesn't provoke fear in the sense of being afraid of abuse. It's just the opposite. It does provoke mm-hmm. respect. Right. Okay. So why then, if you're, what you're saying is true, then why is this translated this way in the NIV and in other translations? Well, I, you know, I, I, I could say it's on purpose, but I think there's, there's just some assumption um, that's coming into this passage. And so uh, did you know that in 522, where it says um, wives Submit yourself. Well, I can't even say it because it doesn't say it. it says, the verb's not there. Yourself. Yeah, I've talked about that quite a bit, no, that it infers no the s- verb. Yeah, right. It says, um, submit one to another. And then it says, wives to husbands as to the Lord. It's in the same sentence. It doesn't even stop. And when you analyze this whole passage, 
And where do you even start the passage? I would start it in 518 where it says to be filled with the spirit. And then I would, um, well, you would end this little part um, of the household code about husbands and wives, of course, at the end of the chapter. But not once is the wife given a formal command in this passage, not once. Wow. That is, there is not a single imperative given to women. And so uh, I almost feel like I had to back up to explain things is that I actually think Paul was holding back his language because it was assumed in the culture that women were supposed Mm -hmm. to submit. And he's kind of like saying, women, as you were, you've got this. Not only that, you're an example of what I'm talking about submitting. Like if we want to know what submitting is, look at women and now men, you do that too. And, Mm -hmm. and so I don't know if you're familiar with my book, Paul and gender, but I actually go through Ephesians five and I show that um, the way that Paul describes how husband is supposed to relate is actually taking on a woman's role with one small exception of all the description of the way Christ functioned as a head and the way the man was supposed to function as a head. It was mm-hmm. all women's work. It's all women's work. Yeah. And the so, washing and the, right. yeah. Yeah. And then he says, so if you're the head, she must be the body. And so now who has the genitals in that case? He, so treat her like a man, how you mm-hmm. want to be treated. So what this uh, passage actually does is it fleshes out that command to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're in this power relationship, when you're in this relationship in the culture where one person is entitled and the other person is disadvantaged in power, he flips mm-hmm. it and, and explains how the love of a husband towards a wife It's loving Mm -hmm. as himself means that he treats her as if she's the one who is honored and Mm -hmm. she's the one who receives the care that he expects to receive as a man, as a husband. Wow, so interesting. Well, I really appreciate this. That's going to give us a lot to think about. And now, uh, you mentioned to me earlier before we started recording that you were involved in the translation of this for, is it the Common English Bible or which? I was involved. I was the Greek associate editor for the Common English Bible, um, working with Joel Green on, the, on editing the entire New Testament. I did have the responsibility of the Pauline um, epistles. I didn't always get to make the call. Uh, sometimes uh-huh. I did, sometimes I, I didn't. I guess you could almost guess at the times I was able to have a certain influence. But now I'm working on the gender accurate translation with a Christians for Biblical Equality. And we are going through and we are taking this HENA clause as being a, a, a clause of purpose and not some kind of weird and some alternate universe and imperative. I want you to know something that when people say something like, this is not a command, and then they say it's like a Hina imperative, you know, it's, it's a Hina. What they're trying to say is that has, they think it has the force of a command. Well, the husband just got a command. Why shouldn't the wife get a command too? Mm-hmm. The sad thing about this, as you know, the, the impact of this being translated is that it's translated as starting with the command that women submit, which is actually not even in there. Then it mm-hmm. ends with a command that women respect. It becomes the topic of the passage, whereas grammatically, this is the part that's played down in about every way he can. Paul could have used a command if he wanted to. 
but he did not. He chose to use a Hina clause. And it's in the company of an imperative. Well, if it were addressed to the same person, I would say, uh, like the, it, it, was, it gave a command to the man, and that it had Hina, that he do something else, I would say that's imperatival. But when it's, there's a command addressed to the man, and then it switches that into what it would normally be taken as a purpose clause, so that somebody else do something, you would think that, he, that he's behaving with the result that's, that this person would mm-hmm. behave in another way. So when people say that this verse proves that men are supposed to give wives unconditional love, and women are supposed to give husband's unconditional respect, there's no evidence for that in the Greek. The grammar would say that Paul is trying to make the opposite point, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. for the wife. Uh, He's he's trying to impress upon the, the men that their relationship with their wife is reciprocal. It's a relationship of reciprocity, like all the relationships are in the culture. They're built on reciprocity. Now he's trying to, he's kind of you know, burning down the house and turning it upside down by by actually framing the whole thing in the way it does. It's very subversive, but he is he's putting the responsibility for this dynamic on the man. Interesting. Now, I would, you know, and I, I would I would still say he would still urge women to respect, but there's none of this unilateral respect, regardless of uh, coming out of what Paul teaches, coming out of this passage, that there should be a unilateral respect. It's the opposite. It goes the other way. Well, thank you so much. This is really illuminating. I appreciate this. And your book is Paul and Gender. Is that right? We will put a link to that. Okay. Okay. We'll put a link to that. And I really appreciate you joining us. Well, I was glad to do it. Anytime you would like me to comment, I will meet with you like this. This is not a problem. (laughs) Wow. Okay, that was really intense and awesome and a little bit difficult to unpack maybe because it is about Greek. So I brought Keith on the podcast because you actually have studied Greek. Yeah, a little bit. I'm not a a scholar. You're not a scholar. So you're not her level whatsoever. Oh, yeah, that was I I was thinking through that whole thing that people who haven't studied languages might find that really challenging. Like who knows what a subjunctive is like? What is a subjunctive? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and that's the thing. If you study other languages, you learn that there's these these kind of ways of speaking. And most people in English don't understand because in English, the subjunctive is kind of, it's not really there anymore. It, it's just hidden in a few little places. So, for instance, the example that I would use to describe what a subjunctive is, is like the expression that Canadians will understand. But I'm not sure my, our American listeners will understand. But you've, you've heard the expression, long live the queen. Mm -hmm. or or long live the king you know in history currently we have a queen in Canada you know we say long live the queen Mm -hmm. and what that means is that we wish that's going to happen we want that to happen Mm -hmm. it's not like saying the queen is living long that's what they call the indicative mood okay so it's indicating something that is the case okay and it's not a command because I'm not saying hey queen live long like I'm telling you you better live long although we would prefer that (laughs) yes but that's not what you're saying it's not a command no one would think that I'm bossing the queen around when I say long live the queen right Right. it's 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 something you you wish would happen or hope will happen Mm -hmm. and that's what a subjunctive mood is it's something you're hoping will happen but it's not so you're commanding it to happen 
Yeah, one of my grammar things that really gets me, and this is this is the one place that I see the subjunctive in English, is if I were. Yes, if I were you. If I were you. Or people tend to correct that to if I was, yeah. because it's I was. Well, but in the subjunctive, if I were because, is the correct. Well, but see, English is changing, right? <laughs> and we're losing the subjunctive. Yes. And so there's only a few places where the subjunctive is used, and they're usually kind of those old-fashioned sayings. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I were there. Yes. You know, it sounds fancy, right? Because it is fancy, because it's old yes. English. And so... In this verse, it's a subjunctive where it's yeah. communicating something that you wish or that should happen, not something that you are commanding to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's really remarkable about this is that it's talking about something that should happen, which is that wives should respect their husbands. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the context of the time this was written, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like, well, duh. <laughs> right? yeah. Because, I mean, in this time period... The husband, the father, the paterfamilias, right? The, the the man was the head of the house. He had authority over the lives of the people in his household. That's right. Um, so it's like when Paul was saying, wives respect your husbands. It's like that was sort of like the water everyone was swimming in. Mm-hmm. It's not like Paul saying, hey, you wives, I know you're all uppity out there. Get back in line. <laughs> like it was, it was women submitted to their husbands because it was a survival skill. Yeah, that's just what you did. What I found so interesting about what Cynthia said is that, and I've never understood this before, is that there actually isn't a command given to women in that entire passage. I knew this part about verse 22, how if we begin the marriage passage in verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, how the verb submit is not there, how it's inferred from verse 21, submit to one another. Mm. I had known that. But I hadn't realized that in that whole passage from verse 22 down to verse 33, there isn't actually a command given to women. In fact, even even later on, you know, women should submit to their husbands in everything. That's that's still not a command. It's a different voice or mood in in the Greek. Well, and not just that. She talks about this thing called hina, right? Hina means so that or in order that. So it's not just the subjunctive. It's that there's a specific word there that says that so that this thing will result. Yeah. So it's not like a command, like a separate thing. The yeah. two are linked. Mm-hmm. But in that whole passage, there are many, many commands given to men. Yeah. And yet when well, we read that passage in English, we get such a different feeling because a command to women starts it and ends it. Women submit yeah. to your husbands. You know, wives respect your husbands. And yet there are no commands to women. <laughs> and so what a different feel we get. And in English, we miss the emphasis that Paul is trying to make in this passage. Yeah, because at this time period, you know, as I said, men were in charge. And, mm-hmm. so, and so this is a radical way of looking at things. Paul is saying to men that you really need to love your wives. Like that is what a Christian thing to do mm-hmm. is. It's a command. You must do this. As you love your own body, yeah. that's how you should love your wife. We don't realize how big, how revolutionary a statement that was at the time. Yeah, and, and, and this doesn't mean that, that God doesn't have commands for women, by the way. <laughs> like, there are so many commands for women throughout Scripture because any command given to a believer applies to wives and to women. So, mm. you know, when it's be holy as I am holy, um, spur yeah. one another on to love and good deeds, love one another as I have loved you. These are all commands that are given to women that apply in our daily lives, that apply in our marriages. That it's, it's not like God doesn't have something that he requires of women. Not at all. It's just that that wasn't the point of the marriage passage, but in English, we've made it the point. Yeah. And well, I've had people say to me, you know, the Bible never commands women to love their husbands. It just commands husbands to love their wives. Well, that is 
a complete misreading of the Bible. It yeah. says, love one another. That's pretty clear. Yeah. And, and I think it's because we have this concept. We've, we've, we've become so engendered. Huh? What a pun. We've, we've become so obsessed with this gender issue that we see everything in terms of gender. Well, there's so many, so much about in the Bible about how we interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And we ignore, we ignore it all if we focus on a few little verses here and there. Yeah, and so, do that. so there's a lot in the Bible about how you bring up issues when you're upset with each yeah. other. About how, but, but somehow we think that doesn't apply to women in marriage because in marriage all you're supposed to do is give husbands this unconditional respect. And that's where things go really haywire. Yeah, because instead of teaching people healthy ways of interacting... Mm-hmm. We, we break it down to this simple formula. A man must act like this. A woman must act like that. And if you don't act like this as a man, you're not being a godly man. If you're not like this as a woman, you're not being a godly woman. We don't ever talk about healthy. Yeah. So instead what we do is we teach guys, if there's a problem, be the boss, be in charge and make the problem go away. Mm-hmm. And we're t- we teach women, if there's a problem, you know, be sneaky and, you know, try and make him think differently about the way he's doing it without ever confronting him. Yeah, so, the woman the woman is the neck that the, the woman the, is the neck yeah. that turns the and head yeah we, but and and that's funny when you watch that movie and it's 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 kind of cute but when we when we legislated mm-hmm. as that is the ideal for a christian marriage mm-hmm. you know we're teaching people to be a bully if they're a, a husband or to be manipulative if they're a woman yeah. and it's like being you know bullying people or manipulating people is not going to make a good marriage that's right. just not the case right so i have a reader question that no, i want that i want to tackle I got, with I got you no that's good. that and, was and that was we're great not even on the question yet okay. no but i i want to read this isn't actually a question exactly it was a comment that was sent in after i actually first posted about unconditional respect yeah. so this is what she said Tonight I saw your post about unconditional respect and because of your words about not respecting someone that plays video games 12 hours a day. That was my marriage from the very beginning. Needless to say, our marriage suffered greatly because I felt neglected and completely unloved. I was basically told I needed to respect his way of relaxing. Even though I carried the full financial burden and most of the housework, well, all of it until I made him do things. When our marriage crumbled completely, I had a conversation with his mother who listed several things from the love and respect books. My ex's parents were big fans of the book, saying that I didn't respect him, I didn't give him enough sex, I nagged him, etc. This article just made it so clear that the way I felt wasn't wrong and that his actions were. Our relationship would have been so different if he could have put away the games and actually showed our relationship the respect it deserved. I think that's the key. The relationship should be given respect. He didn't respect our relationship and he didn't respect or love me. So needless to say, he had an emotional affair and walked away. It just feels good to hear someone say that the hurtful stuff said to me was wrong and that it wasn't just me. So here's this woman and she's married to this guy who apparently she was the sole breadwinner. He didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. So he stayed at home, played video games all the time. And, and and didn't do the housework. And didn't do the housework either until she finally put her foot down about that, at least. And then he started to do some stuff, some things. And then eventually he ended up having an emotional affair and left. And yet she was told that it was her fault for not respecting him and for nagging him. Yeah. And... You know, this is what happens with this unconditional respect message is that women don't have a way to say, hey, hon, there's something wrong here. And I know you've actually read the Love and Respect book more closely than I have. Yeah, I went through which it. Which is, yeah, you went through it. It's all yours. Well, because we had 
you know, recommended it to people. Yeah, from because the... we heard it was a good book. From the stage at marriage conferences. You know, and yes. I never read it. I, I, I hadn't read it, right? Yeah. So then you started saying all these things about it, and I was like, no, I can't really say that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I did actually read the whole thing. So. God says that we are to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Mm-hmm. Like, we're supposed to be pointing people to Christ. Yeah, that's the first thing I think of when I think of this. It's that, you know, I you respect me, mm-hmm. right? And I respect you. Mm-hmm. But... I like the fact that you kind of challenge me when I'm not where I should be, just the way that I challenge you when you're not yeah. where you should be. Yeah. And and I would never want us to be in a situation where we don't feel comfortable that we could do that, that yeah. we have those kind of conversations. Yeah. And, and what would happen if we just simply taught couples, you know, early in your marriage, if one of you is doing something which, if it continues like it's going, is going to end up really hurting the relationship or really hurting them, mm-hmm. then you need to learn to speak up. Yeah. And speak up respectfully because, yeah. you know, we should yeah. you know, but, not be nagging and harping on people and being critical. And... Mm-hmm. But what would happen if she said early in the marriage, and I'm not trying to pick on this particular person mm-hmm. who wrote this. I'm just talking generically. You know, if you're married to a guy who plays video games 12 hours a day and doesn't get a job, what would happen if early in your marriage, you know, you were to say to your husband, you know, I don't, I don't like the trajectory of our marriage. Mm-hmm. How about if we eat dinner together at a table every night, and then after dinner we do something together for two hours a night? Yeah. yeah. This, you know? Yeah, and say this is important to me. This is important. This to is me. really important. We have to do this, and it's all it's setting boundaries basically. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, and it's, it's saying that this is what I want out of this relationship, and what's happening now is not. It's just not acceptable to me, and I, I don't, I don't want things to go that way, and that's perfectly appropriate. I mean, mm-hmm. having. Not contributing to the family income, not cleaning the house, not doing anything other than mm-hmm. playing video games all day long. I mean, that does not deserve respect. Yeah. You know, if the guy yeah. has an addiction, yeah. well, you can be sympathetic, but then deal with the addiction. Mm-hmm. Like, move past this. And if, if you say, you know, I, I would like to spend time together every night or whatever it might be, and he refuses to engage at all, then you go see a licensed counselor. <laughs> And you start saying there's something really wrong and we need to deal with this. And if they won't go to a counselor, then you go by yourself to at least get some help so that you can approach this in a better way. Because if you see your marriage going in a direction which is really bad, it's not disrespectful to speak up. Mm -hmm. And it can go the other way too. A lot of times there's women who are sort of demanding men act a certain way and don't Mm -hmm. really count, count for their feelings either too. And it's the same well, one of the, one of the classic examples that we often get is a woman who gets totally involved with the children and then ends up mm, ignoring yeah. the marriage. Yep. Um, obviously kids are all encompassing and there's a period well, of time when you need to be a hundred percent on the kids. Yeah. But if this goes on and on and on past, you know, the newborn stage, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's the challenge with it too, because it's like a, I'm doing it for the children. And all of a sudden you're mm-hmm. as a husband, you mm-hmm. feel like you're being selfish because you're demanding you're demanding your wife's attention and taking it away from the children. And, mm-hmm. But often it's, it's a dynamic that, that is unhealthy and needs to be addressed. Yeah. So the same thing. You just, it's about setting boundaries and saying that this is what we need to do to make ourselves strong and our marriage work well. Mm-hmm. Not just today, but into the future as well. Yeah, because if you can see that your marriage is going on a trajectory that's going to be bad, it's so much better to speak up early mm-hmm. before those habits get ingrained. Because, you know, being on, on video games 12 hours a day once you're married, that's a habit that develops. Even if you had the habit before marriage, mm-hmm. once you get married, this is the time to develop all new habits. And if yeah. you allow that habit to solidify without saying anything, it's just going to go really badly. Yeah. And so there are key times in our marriage, often right at the 
the beginning of the marriage, you know, or, you know, whenever you're adjusting to a new job or new kids or whatever, where you're getting new habits and now's a good time to reevaluate and say something if it's not going well. And so this idea that she is never allowed to speak up because to do so is disrespectful because he's the one in authority. Well, that can end up just enabling sin. There's this whole mentality with this idea out there that um, if you just respect him, he will rise to the yes. occasion. Yes. And that's, I think, what the mother-in-law was kind of suggesting here. Mm-hmm. You know, he was playing video games 12 hours a day, but it's because you didn't respect him enough. And if you respected him enough, mm-hmm. he would be do better. You know, in my experience, people who are lazy and not attending to other people mm-hmm. don't suddenly attend to other people when you back off and leave them alone. Right. They get more isolated. They get more self-focused. I think that this is uh, this idea that they're going to suddenly rise to the challenge it's totally, there's no evidence to support that's going to happen mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it can, as you said, it can enable the, pro- the problem to continue without being challenged. Mm-hmm. All right, my husband is gone. Keith is gone and I've now brought Rebecca on for our last segment in the podcast. What does research say? Yes, hello. And Becca, we have been talking about unconditional respect all through this podcast. And you have something to say about the research on respect and men and marriage. Yes, because this idea of unconditional respect is accepted as just the status quo. This is this is the baseline that Christian marriage advice is built on, right? Mm-hmm. We all acknowledge that this is just how the world works, right? Men need respect, women need love. Yeah. Right? So this all started really with in the early 2000s, mainly got big with the release of Emerson Eggert's Love and Respect, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to actually delve into where the research came from. So I have his footnote here that talks about his citation for where he got his information. And he says that it comes from Shanti Feldon's um, research for For Women Only, What You Need to Know About the Inner Lives of Men. Um, Mm -hmm. And he talks about how her survey was done, which is also in her book, so I'm not going to read it twice. But proof for people on YouTube, his citation is Shanti Feldon. um, And and that's the only one. And he calls out specifically uh, a survey designer... Chuck Cohen. Yeah, Chuck Cohen uh, is uh, from Analytic Focus who helped with uh, the survey analysis. Yes. So that's where the research came from. So let's actually read the research from the researcher herself. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in Shanti's book for women only where she presents her research that she did, here's what she says. While it may be totally foreign to most of us, the male need for respect and affirmation, especially from his woman, is so hardwired and so critical that most men would rather feel unloved than disrespected or inadequate. The survey indicated that three out of four men would make that choice. Look at the survey results. And then she she shows a photo of her question and the results. And here's what it says. Think about what these two negative experiences would be like to feel alone and unloved in the world or to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone. If you were forced to choose one, which would you prefer? Would you rather feel alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? And what she found is 74% of men chose they would rather feel unloved and unloved. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So that seems blatant. Mm-hmm. Right? 74%. 74%. So here's, here's where it gets a little weird. Okay? Here's what she says next. When I originally tested the survey questions, I was perplexed that many men had a hard time answering the unloved versus disrespected question because they appeared to equate the two. Chuck Cohen, the same Chuck Cohen who Emerson Agrich calls out as being really important in his yeah. citations. Mm-hmm. Chuck Cohen, the survey design expert, warned me that might happen. Why? I wondered. Those are two totally different things. Then one of my readers tested my survey questions on 10 men who didn't know me. When I got the surveys back, only one note was attached. A lot of guys fussed over question three. They did not feel the choices were different. 
So I want to mm-hmm. actually look at what that means from a psychometric yeah. perspective. Because mm-hmm. psychometrics was kind of like my baby of psychology. I mm-hmm. loved psychometrics. I was incredibly nerdy. Yes. And no one likes psychometrics class. Right. I loved psychometrics What class. is psychometrics class, Psych- Rebecca? <laughs> psychometrics class is a wonderful, beautiful land of survey development and test development. Mm-hmm. So it pretty much covers how we measure stuff in psychology. Right. Okay? So it covers everything from the IQ tests that you might take to the customer satisfaction survey on the back of your McDonald's receipt. Okay. Okay. Psychometrics is anything where you're getting data from self-reported means. Mm -hmm. So it includes your open-ended questions. It includes interviews. It includes surveys. It includes validated diagnostic tests and tools Mm -hmm. that we have that we use in clinical settings. Like Mm -hmm. your Beck depression inventory that might give you a score that says, hey, maybe you have clinical depression. All of these different things. It's just getting information about people. With everything in psychometrics, you're balancing two things, reliability and validity, okay? So these are two of the main measures that we Mm -hmm. use to make sure that any question we ask actually does tell us something. Okay. So reliability is the measure of how likely someone is to choose the same answer more than once. Mm-hmm. when you're measuring a construct, right? So if you have a question where all the responses are pretty much the same thing, you might have really unreliable results. So if someone said, for instance, had a picture of a blue top and said, what color is this top? Blue, azul, like <laughs> azure, um, cyan, turquoise. You might actually have a very unreliable survey unless you're looking at someone who studies color theory. Okay. Right? So because people can't differentiate between the two answers, right? Right. So that's reliability. That's one of it. And so I want to ask, first of all, does Mm -hmm. this question have good reliability? Okay, that's the first thing I want to ask. Does this question get the same results every single time that it's asked? asked? Mm -hmm. Okay. And interestingly, there have actually been other studies that have tried to replicate these findings. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's really reliable. Yes. This is a very reliable question. People tend to answer it the same way. We tend to see a sizable majority of people choosing to be unloved and alone versus respected or disrespected. My mom's just pulling this up. This article from a woman who was interested in figuring out just what was going on. So she actually replicated this survey. So Shanti's survey had 400 people in it. Yes, 400 men. 400 400 men. men. And so this one woman was reading this this research from Emerson Egrich and said, you know, this just doesn't seem quite right. And so she asked. Yeah, so she had a big group already. She did the lifestyle yep. poll and she originally asked 300 women, yep. 75% of whom were from Harvard. Yes. And so she asked 300 women. Mm-hmm. She found the exact same results as Shanti. 75%. 75%. And then she expanded it because she's like, hey, let's just keep asking people. She eventually got 1,200 women Mm -hmm. and it ended up being 65%. Still the majority. Yeah. So here's the thing. She seems to have a very reliable question here. I'll give her that. Very reliable. We've had now 1,200 plus 1,600 people in general. You tend to get around 65 to 75% saying they'd rather feel alone and unloved. Right. It is not gender-based. Right. So that's the first problem. Because the other thing mm-hmm. is that she didn't ask this question in her surveys to women. Yes. She never asked it. Or I, if she did ask it, she may have asked it. Mm-hmm. But it's, no, it's not on any of her research that's available on her website. And this question is in that available research. And, and in Love and Respect, Emerson Egerich specifically is basing his ideas on the fact that 74% of men say that they would rather feel respected than, than loved based on this research question of Shanti's. But he doesn't quote anything that says that women would rather be loved than respected. And so he just assumes both of them actually. Because yeah. Shanti says in her own book, that this might be totally foreign to most of us. Yes. 
It's not. <laughs> yeah. Women, women choose the same thing. So here's the thing. She has, both Emerson Egrich and Shanti Feldman have assumed that because a majority of men answered this way, a majority of women must answer the other way. Mm-hmm. There is no research that shows that. Mm-hmm. So this is a very reliable question. People would prefer to feel alone and unloved than yes. inadequate and disrespected. Yes. But there is another side to this. Reliability yeah. is not the only issue here. Okay. Because you can have a reliable question that measures nothing. Right. <laughs> if it's not valid. Right. Okay? So here's, here's an example of a reliable question um, that doesn't actually have any real validity. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there have been a lot of issues with driving tests. When you become a doctor or a surgeon, there's multiple ways you have to get tested before you are allowed to actually perform surgery. Mm -hmm. Because you can write a really great essay Mm -hmm. about performing surgery, Mm -hmm. but is that actually testing your surgical ability? (laughs) No, it's not. That's not a valid test of your surgical ability. It might be a very reliable measure to test something else, but it's not testing whether or not you do a really good appendectomy. Right. Right? Right. That is a different thing. Writing a really good essay on the best practices for appendectomy mm-hmm. is a reliable measure of a different construct than your actual ability to cut someone open and take out their appendix. Right. So okay. that's the difference between reliability and validity. Okay? Yes. So validity is are we measuring what we think we're measuring? Yes. And this is where we run into problems with this question. Mm-hmm. So... Chuck Cohen, the man who Shanti hired to analyze her survey and to to run some of the statistics, and well, they didn't do any statistics; they only did percentages. Like yeah, seven, they didn't. They only did the basic, um, just the same stuff you get in your just basic output. Seventy four percent of people said this. Twenty six percent of yeah. people said this. They didn't actually do anything else. Yeah, they didn't say of the people who said X. 26% like they didn't do cross tabs but no, we'll get into yeah, that. We'll get into that yeah. later. But this Chuck guy who she hired to have an expert opinion on her survey warned her And about, who Emerson Egrich says is yes. an expert. So all of these people agree that Chuck is an expert. Yes. But none of them take his advice. Yeah. Because <laughs> Chuck goes to them and warns them about the, about the unloved versus disrespected question. Uh-huh. And what happens in surveys is often we write questions that we are so sure we have the right answer for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are so sure, okay? Like, Shanti goes in here and she knows that men need respect and women need love. Because she knows it so much that she says that women are going to say it's, you know, it's totally foreign to most of us, right? Mm -hmm. This makes sense to her. And Mm -hmm. that's fine. Mm -hmm. We all have bias. We all have bias. And that is a part of research is understanding where our bias lies and then not reading our bias into our data. We mm-hmm. had this major problem with our survey. Yeah. For instance, we had questions, we'll be really honest, we had questions about <laughs> modesty and we had questions about the effect of the soul ties teaching. Yeah. And we didn't find anything. Yeah, so we recently did a survey of 20,000 yeah. women, which is um, going to be published in a book, The Great Sex Rescue. So yeah. this is based on 400 men, okay? This okay. entire book, 400 surveys to 400 men. We well, looked, one survey to 400 men. One survey for We looked at 20,000 women, yeah. <laughs> all right? And we asked an, a much, much longer survey. In that, what we were doing was we were testing how certain evangelical teachings affected marital and sexual satisfaction outcomes. And we found some really interesting results on a lot of those teachings, but some of the teachings that we were sure affected marriage and sexual satisfaction. We were so sure that we had whole chapters dedicated to our book. Yeah, we already had chapters planned out and, you know, even sketched out and then... 
we didn't find the findings. No, nope, it wasn't. It wasn't statistically significant. And the and and the one in particular was the one on modesty. Okay. Yeah. And part of our problem was that our survey was so long mm-hmm. <laughs> that we could only ask one question about this, and and we didn't want to prime people, which is and we didn't want to. We it wasn't about priming. You can't. Yeah. We we didn't want to get, ask people leading questions. Yeah. We didn't mm-hmm. want to give them a question where it was clear what we expected the response to be. Yeah. So we were right? trying to create this super neutral question about modesty to see what they believed about modesty and then see how that affected it and we tried so hard to be unbiased mm-hmm. that we ended up not measuring anything and we, don't, and we and the reality is we don't know why we didn't get a statistically significant result it could yeah. be a lot of different things mm-hmm. it could be that there are some protective factors for many people in believing the modesty message mm-hmm. that conflated with the negative results that we had for other people because other research has found that the modesty message hurts people there have yeah. been yeah lots there's of been research. lots Lots of research that shows that the modesty message is negatively correlated with outcomes. Our Our research research didn't didn't find that. And you know, and it's so funny because we're trying to figure out how to ask this question. At one point, we downloaded a whole bunch of pictures of different bathing suits. We were debating. (laughs) That was a real low point, I will say. We were trying to figure out how do we ask this? Do we show all these things like which is appropriate attire? All the way from like (laughs) G-string to like, you know... The one piece with the skirt hanging down to your yeah, knees or exactly. something. Um, but we nixed that because we realized that was offensive. And, and I will say, to, to the 20,000 women who took our survey, you are very welcome but for nixing yeah, that one. But we were trying to figure out how to ask this. And, and our theory is that we just didn't ask it in a proper way that yes. measured what we wanted to measure. And so you know what we did? We just didn't include that in our book. Yeah, because that was the right thing to do. We, when, you, when you have a question that has red flags about something, you know, mm-hmm. your survey respondents say, I didn't understand how to, how to answer this in, in very mm-hmm. large numbers. If you're consistently getting hounded about a specific thing, or if your results are kind of murky and not really telling you anything, you don't draw conclusions on that. Yeah. That's not how we do research. Yeah. The only thing you should be able to say from that is that maybe love and respect are not so easily separated. Because here's another point. When you're developing a survey, there's something called a pilot study that you do. And we did it with ours. We had people take our survey and send Mm -hmm. us very long, um, (laughs) very long critiques of as much of it as possible. Say, which questions did you find confusing? Which ones did you not know how to answer? Which ones did you think were leading or which ones were offensive? Like we, we did all this kind of stuff for the, for the women's survey. We had a bunch of people read it and send us a lot of information. Joanne and I actually changed quite a few questions because of the feedback we got. Yeah. This is what pilot studies are for. You do a small group, like 10 to 50 people, yeah. you send it out. And one of her readers even did it for her. She got a free pilot study. Yeah. You know how great that is? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to ever give us a free pilot study? Tell us. Yeah. But she disregarded it. <laughs> yeah. So she, she has the expert telling her this survey, this question isn't, Valid. valid. It's not measuring what she thinks she's, it's measuring. And then she has her pilot study saying the same thing. Yep. Because here's the thing. A lot of guys fussed over question three. They did not feel the choices were different. That could be a reliability issue or a validity issue. We know that it's probably reliable because again, we've now had multiple other people take this and they got similar results. But what is left is that maybe this is just an invalid question. 
Yeah. There's a couple different reasons this could be. The very basic one is there's something called a double barrel question in psychometrics, which you never want to do. And sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes it's unavoidable and and you do that. But a double barrel question means that you're getting, it's generally anytime there's an and, an or, uh, a but. And in general, you want to avoid them. There are times you can use them. But in this, it's alone and unloved versus inadequate and disrespected. Yeah. How do we know that people are choosing disrespected? Yeah. How do we know that they're not... They'd rather feel alone than feel totally inadequate. Yeah. Like, how do we know it's the disrespected and unloved that yeah. they're reacting why, to? I don't even understand. Why does she have to do alone and unloved? Why don't she just do unloved, disrespected? Yeah. What would you rather feel? Yeah. You know, that may have been a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know. But mm-hmm. what they're actually saying is that the two were the same. And mm-hmm. multiple people have all said that now unloved and disrespected it feels the same yeah it feels the same so what we have from the research is mm-hmm. first of all this question was not asked of women at all in shanti's original research right. which is what emerson Eggers is basing his entire book yeah. on. so the, the whole book the whole concept is based on the idea that men need respect and women need love and they only ever asked men if they need respect or love and so this yeah. is the equivalent of someone coming up to you and saying i asked 400 men do you need food or do you need water? And those men mm-hmm. hadn't drank in four days. Mm-hmm. And those men said they needed water. So you as a woman need to understand that your need is not for water the same way that men's need for water is. Yeah. Your need is for food. Mm-hmm. And men, they need water. But all these men are looking at the surveys like, well, right now I need water, but what if I'm hungry? Yeah. <laughs> and also, all the women are saying, but I need water too. Yeah. That is what happened here. Yeah. That is, and there is a larger issue that we need to talk about when it okay. comes to research in Christian literature mm-hmm. is we need to go back to what it means to be like the Bereans. Mm-hmm. And this in is what Paul... Acts in Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul urges the church to be like the Bereans because they question and they test and they dig in and they don't take things at face value. So let's just read what, what it says yes. specifically there. Sorry, Kate, I gotta get the Bible. Okay. In Berea. So here we go. This is from Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Yeah. And that's what it means to be a Berean. It means you hear stuff. And you examine it. But then you examine it. You see, does this actually measure up? And I'm sorry, I have no idea how the Christian world allowed this mentality to exist when in the very book where this research is from, it is blatantly said that men didn't know how to answer this question. The survey analyst himself said this isn't a good question. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, on top of that, it was never asked of women. Yeah. So we have a gender difference question here. We have, we have something which is being presented as a gender difference that mm-hmm. wasn't asked of women. Yeah. And is openly said by the researcher herself to not be a good question. And yeah. I do think maybe it's that we just don't understand research mm-hmm. in the church. That might very well be it. But I have such a hard time with the fact that I know there are people who have done research. And I know there are people who have a scientific background mm-hmm. who have read these books and haven't even looked. Yeah. And what would have happened if when these books were first being spread... Mm-hmm. People with academic backgrounds in the church who knew this stuff mm-hmm. could look into it and say, hey, um, 
This doesn't make sense. Why are we drawing a gender conclusion on something that was only ever asked of one side of gender? Yeah. Or like, what if the publisher... What if the publisher... Had read that page and said, hey, you know, if your survey developer said that's not valid, maybe we shouldn't include this chapter in the yeah. book. And you might think that sounds a little bit extreme, saying it's an invalid question, but that's, that's what that means. Mm-hmm. If people aren't sure what it means and we don't actually know what it's measuring because we're seeing kind of all over the place responses, but it seems to be reliable... Mm-hmm. Validity is the only thing we can really fall to, right? If your pilot testing people are telling you, I don't know how to answer this question because I don't know what it's asking, yep. that's a validity question. We have the book coming out yeah. in March that is based on a survey. We do not want our book to be the final word. In fact, no! our, book, our book ends with a call for more research. Yep. We, we said, you know, this is, we, do, we just want to be starting the conversation. We're not trying to finish it. And we would love to see more research. And we listed a whole bunch of different topics. Because the point of, of research and of science is to be constantly be learning more and to be refining and to be mm-hmm. figuring this stuff out. Yep. And, and so it's perfectly valid to go back to something and say, you know, I'm not actually sure that says what, what they think it says. Yeah, this is what happens in every single discipline of research, yeah. right? One person finds this gene in someone and says, I think this is the reason people get depressed. And another person says, what are you, you fool? That is not the reason people get depressed. It's why people don't get depressed. And then they argue about it for four years, right? And then this they figure it out. And then they work together and figure it out. And so what we need to understand is that just because someone has a survey or someone did like research or someone mm-hmm. says that they're an expert, you still need to be like the Bereans, okay? Mm-hmm. When our book comes out in March... We're going to have all of our information on our website as well. Like, we mm-hmm. want you to dig into it. Mm-hmm. We want you to look at it. And if something seems off, like, talk, like that's fine. We can talk about yeah. it. If you want to do your own study, that's great. Like, mm-hmm. let's actually start talking about this in a healthy way, the way that, frankly, the secular academic world already does. Because this would never have passed in the secular world. It really wouldn't. And yet, instead, we've had... Our best sellers in the Christian world for the last 15, 16 years have been saying men need respect and women need love. And they've said this is based on science. And it's not based on science. Again, it's like asking men if they're hungry sometimes and then telling women you don't feel hunger the same way men do when they didn't ask women if they get hungry too. And again, like when we're doing research, it's complicated. We all have biases. Mm -hmm. We all do. And it must be, have been really difficult to be a one-person researcher. That was something that was really helpful in our survey. You might think that because my mom and I are mother and daughter, we have all the same biases. We totally don't. Mm-mm. We We've, actually we we had a lot of conflict over. We which actually questions to we include. disagree on a lot of stuff. Actually, yeah, yeah we do. Uh, <laughs> and same and Joanna as well. Like the three of us have very very different perspectives on many of these questions and many mm-hmm. of the things we were trying to ask, which which was really really good because it allowed us to mm-hmm. kind of just cut some questions entirely because I just nixed some Joanna nixed some of mine like you nixed mm-hmm. some of Joanna's mm-hmm. right and other and then others we were able to help each other mold and grow and so I can totally see how if you were developing a survey all on your own that would be pretty easy to have something slip yep. by the problem is just I do get concerned when there are multiple checks that say hey this isn't right hey this isn't right hey this isn't right and we don't acknowledge those checks my question is what was the purpose of the survey then was it actually to find truth mm-hmm. or was it to put forth an explanation for something that we had already in our own bias believed to be true mm-hmm. i have a hard time seeing how it's anything but that when you mm-hmm. can get multiple people telling you this question isn't good and instead of saying maybe we shouldn't talk about this question then which is again the standard 
in yeah. research. Yeah. We go forward and not only talk about the question, but base an entire theology around it. Yeah. And that's a problem. And that's what we don't want to see happen anymore. And so last week we took down the stumbling block message. This week, I hope we've, we've shown you that the unconditional respect message is really problematic. Yep. And let's simply get back people to serving like Jesus did yep. and loving like Jesus did, putting Jesus at the center, running after him and, and trying to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, because that is God's will for our life and anything else gets really extra and, and what's us off track. And that that'll look like is loving and respectful marriages from yes. both spouses to both spouses, regardless mm-hmm. of gender. Amen. So find us, find all the links to all of this on tolovehonorandvacuum.com. There's always a post that goes along with this podcast where we have lots of links where you can look it up. We will put a link to the Psychology Today article we talked about and some other things. Go find all those links there and join me at tolovehonorandvacuum.com for lots of fun Christmas stuff and in January and February for the start of our great sex rescue posts where we look at some of the harmful teachings. Remember that you can pre-order the Great Sex Rescue now and it helps us tremendously. It does. (laughs) So thank you and we will see you again next week.